This is Multinew Media. I'm Chase Raz, a university instructor, corporate trainer, and your host for Multinew Media. In this episode, I'll be helping you make sense of all of the recent buzz about online privacy rights being repealed, and more importantly, what that even means, especially for those of us in business. Is this just another heated American political debate? I mean, let's face it, you're probably thinking that it is and tuning out a lot of this story. Is it possible that recent events are part of a larger set of circumstances? Through the use of that rhetorical question, you can probably intuit that there's certainly a bit of backstory. From my point of view, me, Chase, a a real human being, I'm not sure that my role as a typical interviewer or facilitator of conversation is good enough for this particular topic at this moment in time. So bear with me as I put on my instructor's hat yet again. Maybe this should become some type of series here on the show, but we're about to explore what's going on with all of this privacy talk that so many people are tuning out. Oh, and one last thing. This episode is going to be tied in with an article at multinewmedia.com. So go over to multinewmedia.com, look for a publication date of an article on April 10th, the same publication date as this podcast, that's April 10th, 2017, and you'll see the feature article that goes along with this podcast episode and all of the comment sections for every page of that article and for the podcast page itself for episode 68 All of those comment sections are intertwined, so feel free to join the conversation at any of those access points. So let's start at the beginning and figure out why you're likely tuning this topic out. SJRES 34, or Senate Joint Resolution 34. Oh, okay. So I have to pause there. My first few words on this topic, and who among you didn't just want to hit the pause button and never come back to this episode? I want to stop looking at my notes, stop recording, and go back to sleep. But bear with me. This is going to get interesting. In case you're not just business and technologically minded, but also politically minded, the full title from Congress.gov representing the United States' 115th Congress is Senate Joint Resolution 34, a joint resolution providing for congressional disapproval under Chapter 8 of Title 5 United States Code of the rules submitted by the Federal Communications Commission related to protecting the privacy of customers of broadband and other telecommunication services. Oh my God. So I never thought I'd say this, but I'm starting to wish there had been one of those cutesy congressional acronyms applied to this bill. You know, like how the bill to prevent future Ponzi schemes as organized by Bernie Madoff was called Madoff, as in making all data open for financial transparency act, Madoff. I'm almost wishing Congress had been so trite in this case to spare us that title. Anyway, the bill was introduced by Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona. It has no sponsor and is listed as having 24 co-sponsors, all Republican. Now, no hate. I want to explain why I'm calling out the fact that they're all Republican. When something has 24 co-sponsors in a legislative body that has 100 voting members, so almost a quarter, and all of them are of the same party, You've probably got an agenda at work. Some agenda, somewhere. Now, there are exceptions to this, right? You policy wonks out there. Yes, there are exceptions. But generally, 24 co-sponsors of a 100-member body, you've got an agenda. No matter where you fall in terms of American politics, or even if you care about American politics at all, you'd look through this list and know it's not a list of superstar Republicans either. More like the infamous. 
for a sampling of three co-sponsors really quickly. Consider James Inhofe from Oklahoma. Head Turtle, Mitch McConnell from Kentucky. Sorry, I had to. I couldn't resist. The comedians are right. He looks like a turtle. And Florida's own, very thirsty, Marco Rubio. What's my point? Whether you like these guys or not, you understand the jokes I'm making about them. They're not the most popular, famous, upstanding, not even Republicans, senators. Their approval ratings are, how shall we say, less than stellar. Congress overall has an 11% approval rating right now. That's only 2% higher than the 9% approval rating when Congress shut themselves and the rest of the government down a few years back. All right, back to the bill. Something called Chapter 8, Title 5 is referenced. Chapter 8 is in Title 5 of the U.S. Code. Now, for those of you who went through business school or deal with any type of legal ramifications within your business, you know the U.S. code, right? For those of you who don't, Wikipedia is a great stop. Uh, Talked a lot about in business schools, though. So what is Chapter 8 of Title 5 of the U.S. code? Well, it's titled Congressional Review of Agency Rulemaking. Now, under that, Section 802 specifically addresses that Congress has a mechanism for disapproving of some type of agency rulemaking. The FCC or Federal Communications Commission, in this case being an agency under the executive branch of the government, that Congress, the Senate, the House here in the United States, that they can disapprove of a procedure. Now, Section 802 is is called that congressional disapproval procedure. But what the Senate, in this case, as a part of Congress, is disapproving of is a 2016 FCC ruling referenced at the end of this resolution's title. I know we're getting complex. Trust me, we'll move out of this in a moment. Don't don't get too bogged down in it. But remember the very ending of that long title I read goes protecting the privacy of customers of broadband and other telecommunication services. That's the name of the 2016 FCC ruling. If you'd like to see that rule, check out the Federal Register. Specifically, volume 81, number 232 of the Federal Register on page 87,274. No, I'm not kidding. Now, the Federal Register, which can be found at federalregister.gov, is self-described as the daily journal of the United States government. Laws, bills, rules, regulations, all of it. A bit of a professional tangent here. If you're a business person, and not at least monitoring this source of information, shame on you. And don't worry, we're in this together. Shame on me. Now, let me tell you a little bit of uh, an embarrassing truth. I love business, obviously. I wouldn't be doing this show if I didn't. I'm a self-professed political junkie also, though. I don't think I had ever, before conducting research for this episode, pulled up an actual rule or regulation in the Federal Register, even as a political junkie. I've relied on news so much for the information, and there's a reason that multi-new media may deliver some news, but we're not a news site. If we ever want to go into anything more than MTV News-style recaps, we'd likely hire a journalist or partner with someone. We weren't going straight to the source. So I really want to encourage you, take the new practice. I've added it to my favorites in my browser, federalregister.gov. It's a great place for business people to get insight of what the government is doing and how it impacts us as business people, as technologists. And, you know, it's so important to get that news, to get that information, and to stay awake for these how shall I say, less than exciting topics. Now, why? Because these rules, regulations, executive orders, bills, they make law. 
Law dictates how we conduct business within our countries, within the economic framework provided for everything from our own livelihood to taxation to fund roads that move people and product to schools to educate our future employees and, dare I say, replacements and military to defend our common interests. No political agenda from me here either. Grandstanding, sure, absolutely, always from me. But no agenda beyond emphasizing importance. And I think... All right. I hope, at least, that I've done that. So let's move on. You may be wondering how, at this point, I'm going to back us out of this political boringness that we've been discussing and onto some connection between this privacy ruling and business and technology and how it all matters. I think a great place to start is at protecting the privacy and so on and so forth document from the FCC that was in the Federal Register, the document that all of this recent hubbub exists around. Now, it had three primary purposes, three primary points that that ruling attempted to accomplish or to address, rather. First is that ISPs, Internet Service Providers, right? ISPs had to provide privacy notices and change updates that let their customers, that let consumers know what data was being collected, how that data was being used, so on and so forth. Two, that ISPs needed to provide choice on what personal information is disclosed so that you as a subscriber to an ISP to a broadband service somewhere out there in the world can choose whether you're opting in or opting out of having your data used to target you for marketing and advertising purposes. And three, that when a data breach happens, you as a customer would have to be notified. And you'd also have to be informed on how uh, the company, how the ISP, planned to secure your data. So this third item was data security and data breach notification. B2B sales of services to another company were even exempted in a lot of cases, as long as these three points, transparency, choice, and data security slash data breach, as long as those three things were included in the contract for B2B services, that B2B arrangement was excluded from this FCC ruling. And that's it. That's all this bottled down to. Three things. Transparency of privacy notices. Choice in what's disclosed because congressionally recognized exemptions already existed as part of the ruling that allowed customer data to be collected. It could only be used to provide the internet service and prevent internet connection theft. And of course, three the obvious one, I think, making people aware of when and how and to what scope their data has been violated. All of that taken down so that your ISP or internet service provider can sell your browsing data to marketing companies. We're going to explore why this is the case in much more detail. But this is where we need to put a pause on things because it starts to get extremely interesting. Many of us who listen to the show, we're marketers. We work directly in the field of marketing or our involvement in business leads us to care about what happens in that world. I'm going to give some more insight on what all of this marketing talk means for us as business people and remember as technologists after a short break. I want to make sure you stick around for after that break. Let me offer a teaser here. The takedown of privacy, this FCC ruling, had more to do with net neutrality than anything, than anything even remotely connected to privacy. I'll be back in 30 seconds.
don't forget that this episode is paired with an article on multinewmedia.com. Look through our articles for a publication date of April 10th, 2017, and you'll see a feature titled Privacy and Neutrality. The comment section for this podcast episode, episode 68, and each page of that feature article are linked together. So feel free to use any of those comment sections as an access point to join our conversation. If you want to reach us off air, you can always email us feedback at multinewmedia.com. All right. So what's all this about net neutrality that I'm bringing up? First things first, you ought to know about the Communications Act of 1934. Hopefully you already do. Hopefully this is nothing new. And you should also know about the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Same story. Shouldn't be anything new, but I get it. I get it. This all may be brand new for you. Now, if you don't remember, here on Multinew Media, I was talking about these two things, the Communications Act and the Telecommunications Act. I'd reference you back to episodes two and six of Multinew Media where we address net neutrality. I really would suggest listening to both of these episodes to brush up on things. They're from way back in 2015, but that's when the most recent big round of net neutrality was taking place. Just be a bit forgiving when you listen. The show was brand new then and we were still figuring out the format. And back in one of those two episodes, I said that net neutrality was, and I believe a quote here, a slow, long war, end quote, that's being fought over the course of, um, I think I said a decade or so. Now, I'm selling that timeline a little bit short. It's quite a bit longer than that. But the FCC has so far held off fast lanes for connectivity where internet providers wanted to charge content providers for these quote-unquote fast lanes to make sure that their bandwidth had priority. I think of what that would have done in Netflix. That was the argument at the time. Metered lanes, just another term for fast lanes. They've held off ISPs selling your data since, geez, the 1990s or possibly even before. I mean, we're talking pre-web days in some of these situations, talking about Internet only. Internet dates back to 1960s when a lot of these concerns were first initially thought of, but they weren't practical that we didn't need legislation for a lot of this until the mid-1990s when the web started picking up commercially after its, um, after its technical introduction in 1991. The FCC has also held off ISPs charging more for customers who want to opt out of tracking and thereby opt out of marketing initiatives. Again, more on the marketing in just a little bit. But in 1996, this was when the Telecommunications Act was passed and Section 222 prevented providers, ISPs, from sharing or even using what's called Customer Proprietary Network Information, or CPNI, without customer approval. Now, of course, they could still use this information to verify that you are, in fact, a subscriber and not stealing the Internet connectivity, but... They couldn't utilize your your browsing history, your search history. Uh, they couldn't monetize it through selling it to marketers. None of that could happen. And that's all covered through the Telecommunications Act of 1996, Section 222. So what was the FCC doing last year in 2016 and writing this ruling and coming up with this ruling? Now, it was always about filling a gap that's existed around broadband ISPs. So if we go back in time to the fight in the 1990s, we had companies that provided infrastructure, and I'm just going to refer to them as infrastructure companies. Of course, I'm talking digital infrastructure, the connections for most people and businesses to the Internet and thereby to the web. We had a situation 
and still do have a situation where broadband ISPs are not necessarily treated in the same way that ISPs were treated back in the 1990s. Now, the difference is technological. In the 90s, how were you connecting to the Internet? Provided you were old enough to be on the Internet, you know that old, annoying dial-up sound. We were using our modems at the time to connect through phone lines. Now, phone lines are a public utility. They may be run by private companies, but they are covered under the Communications Act of 1934 as a utility. Therefore, connecting to the Internet through those phone lines constitutes as a utility. But as we made the switch over to broadband, something interesting happened. We noticed that our cable networks were a little bit better at providing connectivity. And by a little bit, I mean a lot. We had a few options there. We had power companies that could have provided connectivity, cable companies. And the way everything fell, for one reason or another or for many, was that cable companies became our default broadband providers. Now, cable is not a utility you may think of it as a utility, but it's not something that you need. It's not something that you necessarily have a right to access. It's not like power and water, something required for the modern uh, day life. In fact, a lot of us are cutting our cable to save money or be out of revolt of not liking the content that's there or out of the, the prices that are being charged. But you wouldn't do a similar thing and cut your water. You wouldn't do a similar thing and cut your power access. In fact, because those things are utilities in most situations, even if you want to go off-grid, you may not be legally allowed to. As far as cutting cable, it's a luxury. Good riddance if you want rid of it. And there's problem number one. The Internet is becoming quickly a requirement for modern life, just like power and water. Now, for many people, that sounds grandiose, but try getting a job in the modern day and age in the United States without Internet access. Sure. There are opportunities. What you would essentially have to do is drive around from location to location to location. And I get it. I hear you old timers saying, but that's what we used to have to do, Sonny. I get it. But the thing is, the only types of businesses that have those kiosks for you to sit down and fill out your application tend to be frontline service positions, which are great positions, nothing against them. But what if that's not the line of work you're in? What if you're a developer? What if you're a marketer? What if you're in construction? What if you're, the list goes on and on and on. Then you have no access to jobs. It is simply expected of you to have internet access at the ready and available to you all the time without having to drive down to the library every other day. Now, because of that, we already, as consumers, as customers, think of the web and the internet as a utility. But we're getting that internet connectivity delivered to us through technologies that are not considered utilities, first and foremost through cable. Now, we get into a whole other conversation if we start talking about mobile phones. I'm going to shelve that conversation just for now, just for today, and we'll stick with cable because that's still being treated as the primary internet connectivity point for most people in the United States. That won't be true for long from what I understand, from the research that I'm seeing out, especially with new, what we're calling 5G connectivity, uh, blah, 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 right? That's all topic for another day. Focusing on cable for a moment, you're using a luxury good in order to deliver a utility. We have a major problem there. And so what's happened is that the infrastructure companies, these cable companies, for lack of a better term, but the infrastructure side of the house has basically gone and legislatively argued that we're not a utility. We shouldn't be governed as a Title II utility provider. 
We shouldn't be governed that way. Now, it's only since 2015 that they have been considered Title II. That's what we were working for. And if you go back to Episode 2 and Episode 6, you'll hear all about that story as it was happening. But it's a very recent development that these Internet services, even provided by cable companies, are treated like utilities, like public utilities. Now, that has left some gaps because previously, prior to that point, the web, the internet, the connectivity to the internet, rather, was governed under FTC or Federal Trade Commission rules. Being a Title II company under these Communications and Telecommunications Act moved governance to the FCC. But there's a disagreement. Under the FCC rules, there's this big gap of how they manage broadband because the broadband companies are arguing that they're not a utility, that they're arguing all of these different factors, and there legitimately was a gap between old school 1990s ISPs being legislated fairly well and how our broadband internet services have been regulated for almost two decades now. And just a moment ago, I mentioned the infrastructure side of the house. That's the way I put it. And that begs a question, what's the other side of the house And that side is content. And we have to go back in time for a little bit of historical context because as the web really helped the proliferation of the internet in the 1990s, what we had were a bunch of, I mean, we had this idea of a bunch of tech geeks being online. This is before the dot-com boom in the late 1990s. This is before the dot-com bust in 1999 and 2000. We got great content companies. Okay, so their actual worth may be questionable. A lot of them failed in the dot-com bust. But we started getting these powerful content companies. They got a lot of venture capital attention. They got a lot of stock market attention. They got a lot of other investor attention. And they grew. I mean, just take a look at how Amazon exhibits its power today as opposed to what it was when it was founded around 1996 and when it was losing millions upon millions upon millions of dollars every single quarter until I believe it was, what, 2001 when they finally had a quarter profit? Look at the power that these content companies have now. And content is including retail, it's including actual content, news, that all of that, the non-infrastructure providers. And so many of them like Amazon. I don't know why I'm targeting them at the moment, but I am. So many like Amazon have moved in to the infrastructure space. Now, in the uh, in the accompanying article that I uh, now in the accompanying article that goes with this podcast episode, you'll see I mentioned some some interesting statistics about the top 100 sites and how content has really consolidated into a few key hands. Take a look at that article to get more information on those companies. But as content got bigger and bigger and bigger, of course, the infrastructure companies wanted more. They wanted a larger piece of the pie. And for some of us technologists, we can only blame ourselves, I guess, for the way that the World Wide Web and before that the Internet came to us. For many of us, that was through BBSs or bulletin board systems. And there it was all about this combination of infrastructure and content. You would simply get a bank of phone numbers, of dial-in phone numbers, so that people could connect and communicate and do whatever your BBS was all about doing. Most of the time, just communicating and and sharing uh, particular interests. And then we had the rise of CompuServe and AOL and all of those. Can we really take a look at this combination of where infrastructure companies want to have content so badly? Can we look at that stemming back to the 1990s and say it's because maybe they had to have it early on? How would AOL have been any more successful 
than Prodigy or CompuServe or any of these others early, early connectivity services if they didn't have such proprietary content. I mean, AOL is dominant for so long because of that content, but they timed it early. This is before the Internet was considered a utility. This is before the FCC or even before that, the FTC started really, truly getting involved. This was the Wild West before regulation was needed. In fact, for those of you who, are, who have always been waiting for me to say the words, regulation stifles innovation, the web was at a point then in the 1990s where that would have been true. I don't know, I don't think, that that's necessarily true now. I'm not going to make a position statement on that. That's my thought. Um, we, we'd have to take a look at some of the research that's out there. But I don't think that's the case now. I don't think regulation is going to stifle innovation. There's simply too much money for people not to want a piece of that pie. So in the 1990s, infrastructure companies started building their own, what we were calling then, portals. Not only because that's the way people access the internet, and if you were on, I don't know, GTE like I was back in the mid-90s, you would log in and you'd see their particular portal first. They'd, of course, set their homepage in your Netscape Navigator browser to their portal. It was a way to get advertising revenue, to keep you engaged with them. But then the consolidation started happening. Content companies started buying content companies, started buying content companies. Conglomeration occurred. The infrastructure companies got wise to this as well and started buying content companies. Not just on the internet. We also had a very similar thing happen in cable television at the time. And then eventually it started being cross-channel. Internet companies and cable companies all continuing to merge up and up and up. This is where we get the world of Walt Disney Company buying so many dot-com startups. Think about the infamous failure of the Go network that Disney bought in the late 90s. Think about the fact that Comcast now owns Universal. All of this conglomeration started to happen. Now, as regulators got wise to it and realized that this wasn't necessarily in the best interest of consumers, and quite frankly, for shareholders, I mean, think of AOL Time Warner. What a fiasco that was for shareholders. I almost argue that that's part of the, the growth experience of any medium, but we do need to have some type of regulation to prevent against abuse of that system. But as regulators got smart to this, what happened then was in the 2000s, we started to get this situation where, okay, if we can't continue to merge, if we're going to have our mergers and acquisitions blocked... Maybe what we'll do is we'll violate this net neutrality thing, and if we're an infrastructure company, we'll look to charge the content companies more for secured business, for these fast lanes, for dedicated, guaranteed, prioritized access so that your service, your internet radio station, your internet television station, all of this content so that it is in these special dedicated lanes. I guess if you can't buy a company to get value out of it, Extracting more money out of them through value-added services is the logical next step. So with net neutrality being upheld time and time again, that is where we find ourselves now. Privacy. It may still not be intuitively clear how the connection between privacy and net neutrality makes any sense at all, but that's where we're headed next.
So thinking about this FCC ruling, protecting the privacy of online customers, as soon as Congress said no to that, as soon as that happened, we saw the infrastructure companies like AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, and others come out and say, don't worry, we have absolutely no plan to sell your customer data. Wow. I think this, I think this makes a lot of people sit back and go, then what's the purpose? What are you getting at? What's going on here? What am I missing? So here's the key. This is all about regulation. This isn't about somebody wanting your private browsing history. They can't get that. I'll explain why in just a moment. I mean, they could, but dot, 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 right? It's about regulation. The providers of your internet don't want to be what they are. They don't want to be utilities. They'll fight tooth and nail to not become a utility. Once they do become one, once they are at utility status, and they will become that at some point, the valuation of their infrastructure divisions will be limited. Sure, they may still be free to operate where they want or even charge what they want. But even still, even if that's the case, their legal and regulatory costs will skyrocket. If that's the only ill effect that they have, they'll still fight tooth and nail to prevent that. Worried about your personal information? I would almost argue, don't be. I mean, sure, great, be, be worried. We, we really all should have a little bit of worry in us so that we're cognizant of the, the threats, we're diligent in protecting our information, but you have some other options. You can get a VPN service or go nuclear and use Tor. Call it a day after that. I never want to be lackadaisical about regulation. But in essence, the infrastructure companies are aiming for what capitalism and our national economic policies tell them to strive for. Growth and valuation. They want to bring in all of these content companies and merge with smaller infrastructure companies and become a one-stop shop. It's sort of that they're still in the cable mentality, but it's sort of not. It's the mentality of growth that led to the cable mentality being a thing that's at play. Let's take one of my very much loved tangents. There's a reason that water systems are municipal. There's a reason that most schools are municipal, despite the constant fight that we're having to put up to keep them that way. There's damn good reason that the internet might need to be considered a utility, and some municipalities, like Chattanooga, Tennessee have taken it upon themselves to build their own ISP. I don't necessarily advocate for that, but I'm certainly not against it. The bottom line here is regulation. Infrastructure companies, quite frankly, don't care to sell your direct data. Let's go full 1984 and explore for a moment. Maybe you're a celebrity and someone will buy your browsing history for a million dollars, because a tabloid could make $2 million breaking a scandal about your love of cat videos or an obsession over no-bake cookies or some other mundane, boring BS that's a part of your search history. But now, the, the real you, the not-a-celebrity you, how much is anyone willing to pay for your data? Because there's a lot of us who are not celebrities, and there are only a few, comparatively, celebrities. How much is somebody willing to pay for our data? Will your spouse, your employer, or some weird, strange arch nemesis you have for some reason pay for it? Maybe. But how much? How quickly do they get priced out of the market? Would you, as a business owner, pay thousands of dollars to review the search histories of your employees? 
If so, I really hope you're not working in the finance part of your business because you and all of your employees will be out of work soon. Bankrupt. Looking for jobs. Going place to place to place if we don't get this internet thing, this new contrived contraption listed as a utility. Okay, that's a bad joke from earlier. Oh, but oh, listen, even if somebody were willing to pay for your information, they won't find it anywhere but the black market. No one else is going to sell it to them. Repealing the FCC privacy rules doesn't change the victories of 2015 yet. Caveat on that in a moment. But it doesn't change the victories of 2015 that ensure your broadband ISP is covered under Title II of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Sure, the ISPs still want to protest and say that broadband, in quotes there, air quotes, broadband isn't the same as dial-up ISPs and they should have a different set of rules. That's what they're saying, not me. Nobody actually believes it. Especially not me. It's just a technological distinction between a phone line and a cable line. It's just really easy to throw an outdated technology under the bus to bolster the profitability of a current technology. The new FCC chair is even talking about wanting to undo the 2015 net neutrality victory of having ISPs covered under Title II. And he's openly, yes, openly hostile against net neutrality. I mean, to the point to where you have to scratch your head and go, how the hell did this guy ever become the chair of the FCC? <laughs> Those types of questions we don't want to get into, right? Those are the types of political drama that are pushing people off of this topic and making them ignore it when we absolutely shouldn't be. No more than we ignored the threats to net neutrality in 2015. Still, even if Title II coverage goes away, the FTC would govern the Internet just like it did up until 2015. It wouldn't be good. I mean, it's a way for companies to manipulate a more relaxed and harder to enforce set of rules, but, but technically that's how things have been for almost the entire history of the internet. I'm not advocating for it. I'm just bracing you for the possibility. I won't make an argument to have faith in any of these companies or their leaders. None of the infrastructure companies am I going to make a case that they're going to do the right thing, what's best for their customers. Quite frankly, they're in business and their mindset is to do the best for their shareholders. That's the way these large companies operate. It's nothing new. We've talked about this on the show quite a few times. I'm not even going to trust that the FCC or FTC are going to do necessarily the right thing, even though that is quite essentially, theoretically, philosophically, and literally their job. What I will say is that the Internet is now to the level of importance that it should be considered a human right. Many countries already espouse that idea. This isn't some new, crazy idea that I'm floating. Privacy should be applied equally in the virtual world as it is in the physical world. I drive a Toyota, and Toyota can provide GPS equipment to me all they want. I'm free to buy it from them all I want. But it's illegal for them to track where I go in order for them, Toyota, to sell that information to advertisers or to create some type of, some type of advertising network. Some advertising exchange. Toyota can't do that. I use Spectrum for my internet access. But it ought to be illegal for them to sell my data to advertisers to create their own advertising network as well. Their argument is that they're increasingly limited. They can't buy content companies of any size because the acquisition will get blocked in a lot of cases. They're, they're probably right there. They can't charge them more for a fast lane or a dedicated lane because that would violate net neutrality. And again, they're absolutely right there. And so the world we found ourselves in 
is that a stopgap in the definition of what broadband is and how consumer privacy is impacted by that definition? That mundane thing is killed as a political victory so that infrastructure companies can have some type of grounds to compete with the content companies that they can neither acquire nor charge higher rates. This is essentially the same thing that happened. Remember when Microsoft, one of the most closed proprietary software shops in the world, started embracing open source? How many people hated Microsoft? And how many people today who hated Microsoft then are now contributing to its open source projects? Okay, so it's not exactly like that, but it's close. How many people right now absolutely hate the fact in business that these content companies cannot merge with infrastructure companies without massive, massive hurdles, without massive regulatory approvals? Of course these businesses hate it. They've already tried to acquire their competition, or the other side of the house really is the way I've been putting it. They've already tried to charge those people more, and now failing all of that, they're moving to not this closed, walled-off garden that every infrastructure company wanted, this massively outdated early 1990s AOL model, and they're moving to an advertising-supported future. And the article I'm posting on Multi-New Media that goes along with this podcast goes into this in a little bit more detail, this specific topic. But here's the point I want to make. If you can't buy them and you can't charge them more, then what's the next best thing? Put them out of business. That's the devious, nasty plan. And I'm going to be blunt there. That's the nasty plan that these infrastructure companies are trying to run using this legislative support for killing online privacy protections. They have support from the legislators to do that. And what they're trying to do is to put their competition out of business in the advertising network and advertising exchange business. Facebook and Google, being regulated by the FTC, have more leeway than the infrastructure companies being governed by the FCC. Why? Because infrastructure companies are powering a utility, a public utility. These online services, they automatically have some type of an opt-in system. You have to sign up for an account at Facebook or Google or somewhere else in order for them to even know who you are in order to track you. But the thing is, they've been so efficient, so good at it. These Facebook, these Googles, these everybody else, all of the content companies, they have been so good at what they do that they can track you across site, across the entire internet. We don't know who you specifically are. Now, Facebook can get that information, of course, because you're signed in. Google can get that information because you're signed in. But the information that's sold to the ad exchanges is fairly generic, cookie-based. It's not giving your first name, last name. But the ability to do this type of targeting is immense, it's massive, and it's a big moneymaker. So since the infrastructure companies can't buy the content companies, can't charge them more, the next best thing is to say, I have every bit of user data you could possibly want. Sure, you use cookies and you use super cookies and you use everything else, even computer signature fingerprints, to try to track these customers. You spare no expense of doing it. And you sell that and create advertising networks in order to use this anonymized data to make money. But what we as infrastructure have, this is what they're saying, is every website that everybody visits for how long they are on that site and every single behavior. Think of what that would do 
to the valuation of companies like Facebook, Google, all of these companies that have built massive empires that are funded by advertising revenue. It undermined every bit of value. Why would you pay Facebook for that information when you could go directly to Comcast and get perfect 100% accurate information where no sites are dark, where no sites are hidden from the view of the advertising network? If you cannot buy them and you cannot charge them more, the next step is to destroy them. Business people need to take a good hard look at this. Everybody being everybody being con- customers in this case is talking about privacy, privacy, privacy. But nobody's privacy rights are being reversed. Potentially new policies that were going into place. Some of them were already in place and already at their effective date, but the bulk of which were not going into effect until the future. Those are simply being canceled by an unfriendly group of members in the Congress and their allies in the executive branch. Nobody's rolling anything back yet. But when we talk about removing Title II status from the Internet, when we talk about letting these companies sell their information to advertising exchanges and to create their own advertising exchanges, this becomes quite quintessentially an old money versus new money proposition. I'm not saying that Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, I'm not saying that those companies including Verizon now, by the way, with their acquisitions of not only AOL in the past, but also Yahoo. I'm not saying that they should be given some unfair advantage. What I am saying is that the infrastructure companies are using a false narrative of saying that they have, that content companies have an advantage when they don't. The advantage and the ability to to abuse power lies solely with the infrastructure companies. To have every single piece of data, every single data point about somebody's behavior online. As a marketer, I would love to have that information. But as a business person, as a human being, I see so many ethical dilemmas with that. I want to be able to target the right message to the right person to get them maximum value and to get me maximum value. That's what I want as a marketer. But I do not want to invade somebody's privacy in order to do it. Now, more important than privacy, trust me, nothing's more important than privacy, but in the scope of this conversation, that's not why this topic matters right now. What matters in this particular conversation is the use, the blatant use of privacy in order to undermine net neutrality. And this idea of if you can't acquire them, if you can't charge them more, then destroy them, this is the next step. If we do see infrastructure companies being able to lower the valuations of content companies, potentially get into a regulatory situation where their mergers are allowed or are able to assume more of the role of the content companies, what type of a situation do you think we're going to be looking at? Is it going to be a democratized internet or is it going to look like cable television 2.0? Do you want infrastructure and content in the hands of the same people? If you want to be a content business Verizon or Comcast or any of these other infrastructure companies that are making massive moves into content businesses, why don't you sell your infrastructure? If you so thoroughly believe what some of these companies have told me, said to me, to my face, that they have rooms full of strategists that are much brighter than me who know the eventuality of what's coming 
If you know that, if you're so much smarter than the rest of us in business, why don't you divest yourself of your infrastructure assets, of those high-cost, burdensome assets, and find another company that's willing to operate? And why don't you spin those off? What is it that you're looking for? Because here's the thing. We all see it. You're looking for yet another way to go around net neutrality. You're looking for another little fault in the fence that'll let you break through. With all of the talk about false narratives globally right now, to hear this false narrative about privacy when it's nothing more than infrastructure companies yet again attempting to find a weakness in net neutrality, and this time sacrificing the potential privacy guarantees that their customers could enjoy. As a business person, that's absolutely sickening. I want you to make a lot of money and I want you to be successful, but not at the cost of everybody around you, especially those who are giving you the money and paying you for a service. Have a little bit of respect. To all of those companies out there, I really welcome. Get your PR people. Have them give me a call. Tell me how I'm wrong. How am I wrong about you using the potential secured privacies of customers and not trying to turn that into a fight against net neutrality? Because I see a lot of talk of you defending your actions, and you're right. You're absolutely right. You still, no matter what happens, we have to repeal about 20 years worth of law. In fact, we have to repeal almost 100 years worth of law and go back to the Communications Act for you to be able to sell individual user information. But that's not what any of this is about, is it? No. No, it's not. So what possible point can you have other than undermining net neutrality or at least attempting to yet one more time? All right, and that's all I've got for you. So hopefully this whole conversation on privacy rollbacks and net neutrality makes a lot more sense. What's what, who's who, what's really going on. I hope it all makes a little bit more sense. If you have any questions, reach out. Feedback at multinewmedia.com. If you're a PR person for one of these infrastructure companies, feedback at multinewmedia.com. And of course, we have our comment boards open. Any of the uh, comment sections under episode 68's page or under the privacy and neutrality article page. Any of those comment boxes, they're all linked together now for your enjoyment to jump in on this conversation. Take care. Until next time, I'm Jace Raz, and this is Multi-New Media. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care.